Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I mean, I have to say, like, it's so odd to talk about my book at this moment in time. It, everything feels, like, nonsensical. <laughs> and I'm almost, like, yeah, it's very hard to just um, try and say, this is work I did. It might be helpful when you think that there's no electricity, there's no med- medication, there's no bread, there's no, people don't have their money. And so what am I talking about, really? <laughs> this was Nada Mumtaz describing the current circumstances in Lebanon at the moment of the publication of her book, which we'll be discussing in this interview. Professor Nada Mumtaz is assistant professor in the Department for the Study of Religion and in Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations at the University of Toronto. She received her PhD in cultural anthropology from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. What exactly is a wakf? How did the wakf become a moral person? Is the waqf a moniker to define objects, or is a waqf a set of practices? These questions have occupied scholars of Islamic law and history, Ottoman and Lebanese state officials, and Lebanese citizens alike. Within certain, and let's say outdated and even Eurocentric studies in the history of capitalism and Islam, waqf practices have often been cited as evidence of Muslim aversion to private poverty and a lack of progress, as well as the delayed emergence of local capitalism. While the waqf is often simply defined as charitable endowment, the recent monograph, God's Property, Islam, Charity, and the Modern State, pushes against such simple definitions. Instead, God's Property weaves a complex story in which the waqf moves as a practice to become closer to God with pious intent to a means of evading state control and a mechanism for debtors to protect themselves from merchants to a way to safeguard a family's future in the form of cash, land, schools, trees, and even personal computers. I'm Jenna. And I'm Julian. And we're excited to host Professor Nada Mumtaz to discuss her most recent monograph. Prof Mumtaz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for taking the time to read and engage with the book. I'm very excited for this discussion. So we usually like to begin the interview by asking how you came to be interested in waqf studies, which I think we can agree constitutes a whole subfield in Islamic legal history and studies within your scholarly journal journey. Who were the main scholarly influences on your research, especially related to questions of tradition, secularization, um, via the separation of the economy from religion? Well, um, I would say that um, I never intended to study, I mean, to study Waqf. I was, I came in uh, wanting to work on the Islamic revival. I was, it was something that I had encountered quite a bit in Beirut uh, growing up. And it was really like some of these major changes that happened in the 90s. 
in the late yeah in the 90s throughout the 90s and so my project was really to study the islamic revival i had an always an interest in the urban because i trained as an architect and so i i had originally talked about looking at the spatial aspects of the revival etc and um and then um in my beginning of my second year Sabah Mahmoud's book came out and I read it and I felt like, well, you know, this says a lot about what I'm I'm interested in, the questions I was interested in. And so um, in terms of the, um, the, the questions around women, perhaps, and, um, and the desire and the different desires like what people have towards piety, it really um, opened uh great avenues but it also felt like she said she helped me see a lot of the things i was and understand a lot of the things i was interested in uh and it was during that same class that we also um read uh brinkley messick's uh cartographic state and that's where i started to think about walk more and more because i was um it, it kind of brought together my interests in the urban as well as in, in the revival and and I would also say that Waqf had been something that existed in you know my general perception or in you know in in the background of my head because uh, you know it, there is a director general of Islamic Waqfs, the Awqaf, people talk about Awqaf so it's something that was familiar and there's like sometimes uh, uh banners you know uh or uh, a certain uh you know inviting you to do a sadaqajaria which means uh, per, uh, a charity that is in perpetuity or continuing charity which is really a waqf so it's something that was familiar but also not really and i think that's the situation of a lot of people who didn't really who, who might know a bit what waqf is but not really understand its mechanism so why reading Messick is when I was like, oh, that sounds like a, you know, a, a good thing to, to that co combines my interests, um, and and I started to see it much more, <laughs> um, and so uh, to to come back to the question of say in the the questions of tradition, um, and secularization, uh, I definitely would say that. You know, my approach to how we think of tradition builds a lot on uh, Talal Asad's conceptualization of Islam as a discursive tradition that combines uh, texts and practices. Um, and that is something that is continually changing. It's a living tradition. So that's kind of uh, where my approach to tradition comes from. And that's where I think to anticipate perhaps some discussions we might have uh, methodologically, uh, it brings together both, you know, uh, documents and ethnography, etc. And uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, well, and then, then the question about secularization. At the time when I was studying, kind of uh, Assad's book had just come out, uh, and, and that was something that I read with a few of my friends, and that was something that was uh, quite foundational, I would say, in the way we started to think about secularism and secularization. But a lot of the debates around that are around, you know, religion and politics, perhaps. 
And, uh, and so the other aspect of my interests lies in political economy. So <laughs> originally I was really, uh, I mean, I came to study at the Graduate Center particularly to work with David Harvey and because that was kind of, you know, as an urban, and as a student of architecture, he's somebody who we read a lot and, um, and my work as uh, for my final project was very much built on on his work so that was kind of my other latent interest my concern uh quite a bit with um the urban process uh the accumulation of capital etc so i have these kind of two very different <laughs> interests that come together in the study of of what given my interest in the economy, I started to also see certain processes of, of separation between religion and economy. And I think that is something that is rarely discussed, the secularization through that angle. And usually it's mostly around, uh, yeah, the politics and religion. And so, uh, so that I think is perhaps one of the contributions of the book to kind of examine secularization through that lens. Your book is wonderfully ambitious in theoretical terms, engaging many concepts in Middle East studies, Islamic legal studies, and anthropology, including, as you've spoken about, secularism, capitalism, charity, property, family, and the state. I think that historians will, will find much to work with since you present a long durée narrative weaving together the Ottoman mandate and post-independence periods of Lebanon's history. Yet the organization of your book employs a terminology less familiar to historians and that may be quite original for other disciplines as well. The book has two parts. Part one is called architecture and part two is grammars. What role do these categories play and how did you arrive at this framework? Well, um, I, I will say that um, grammar is a term that I do borrow from uh, Wittgenstein via Talal Asad. And, uh, and, and it is his invitation to look at the way terms change in meaning, uh, in use, rather than necessarily, for example, just looking at the fact that there are new concepts you know, that emerge. But even more important is how certain concepts continue to be used but have now different meanings. And so he's, uh, he borrows this from uh, Wittgenstein. And, but my first encounter with Wittgenstein goes back to a course I took with Beth Bovinelli uh, on language culture power, where we read the brown and the blue books. And that's where I started to, to learn about the notion of a language game. And that's kind of uh, where you start learning uh, language through these games. Um, and, and it is about these different contexts of use that give meaning to words. And so, um, and I will also say that Wittgenstein and his use in anthro is, is, has a long history, I would say. So um, um, Vina Das has an article back in the 1990s, 1998, where she also draws on Wittgenstein uh, and, and uh, sees parallels between the questions he's interested in and those of anthropologists. So, um, and Das and Asad have connections, you know, they were at Hopkins at the same time. <laughs> so I don't know how much they, you know, I think each one of them has their own trajectory with Wittgenstein. Uh, Asad talks in, 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 a, in a portrait recently published about having uh, learned about Wittgenstein in, 19, in the 1950s. 
Um, so, so yeah, so it, it's a, but then, yeah. Um, so yeah, that I feel like there is a kind of, uh, a long kind of, uh, presence of Wittgenstein, but, um, in, 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 uh, in anthropology perhaps. And, um, and then the terms are, the term architecture is the term I use, um, which I kind of invented it or you know I kind of it's I use it to talk about language games uh, because I feel like language games is so much tied to language and so I wanted to talk about uh, this context in which we learn and uh, concepts and what they mean in the context of these life worlds or these you know uh, ways of being in the world and and I think for me, in, in this context, it, it refers to this particular articulation of um, law and state and religion, uh, even though you can say that, you know, the way religion was understood was, you know, different, etc. But uh, it's, it's hard to talk about these when they are all moving parts. <laughs> but that's how I, I try to talk about um, the architecture, to talk about how there's a certain setting uh, that changes what we mean by law, what we mean by charity, by what we mean by intent that uh, depends on, or even property, economy, uh, on, on the particular con certain configurations that exist uh, institutionally, but also... Um, yeah, I think um, the usage of grammar um, in the text sort of like really pushes like a methodological intervention you're making, which is if we are going to look at someone that we consider a traditionalist or arrive, you know, all like it's more important to look at how people are employing concepts, what are the logics of their argumentation and reasoning rather than using labels um, as a sort of um, as a sort of signification of what they're going to say or you know as a preset notion of what they'll they'll argue. Um, uh, to build off on that last question, the book straddles between what we conventionally separate into history, archival research, Ottoman and mandatory legal case studies, and anthropology, meetings with your interlocutors in Beirut. Um, and indeed, as we will discuss below, you argue that the wolf becomes a person, a moral person, and that's also someone I think that you interview throughout the, um, throughout the monograph. But even the monograph's format, format seems to interject interviews into the Ottoman and mandatory past and vice versa. I was wondering if you see yourself doing both history and anthropology, and if you believe the distinction between the archive and the library can bring the two disciplines together rather than hold them as separate. Um, and this sort of brought to mind Brinkley-Messick's idea of the anthropologist's reader as a method for anthropologists um, yeah, thank you for this question. It, it also reminds me that it, perhaps an important influence on me was, I mean, even though I say that, you know, Wolf and uh, comes from the calligraphic state, but I in some ways feel I am very much an heir to <laughs> to Messick, and we joke constantly about, I know a lot of his students that, even though I'm not his student, I'm the one who works most closely to his method and to the kinds of work that he does, uh, particularly with bringing together, you know, like the deep investigations of uh, the Islamic legal tradition. Um, and, and, and so I feel like I do somehow something in between history, 
um, legal, uh, Islamic legal studies and anthropology. I feel like I straddle between them because I also look quite closely at Islamic legal texts, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, commentaries and uh, a bit of fatawa, uh, legal opinions, some treatises, um, and, and that comes, I think, from my approach to the Islamic tradition as uh, as this uh, you know the, the, uh, as a discursive tradition and it's a dialogue with uh, some foundational texts uh, and particularly in uh, Sunni Islam as we see it today um, with the fact that there's perhaps no uh, continuing revelation or very rarely uh, you see that perhaps present but uh, the foundational test texts are quite um, uh, important um and and so so i see myself as engaging them as well because i think they inform practitioners uh whether through learning about the islamic tradition from parents from uh scholars whose discourses exist uh and and so i think especially with regards to waqf it's something that there's a lot of feedback loop with these and so in part and given the fact that um the tradition changes a lot and um and and to come to uh th that's why for example i'm also do a lot of history because i think that um a way to understand the present uh one needs to understand the sedimented kind of past that exists in in the practices today um, and, and here, if I want to pick up on your question about Messick's and uh, the idea of the anthropologist as reader, which he discusses in his latest book, um, he says that he, um, he moves between an earlier approach to, uh, to, to the study of uh, Islam, say, is more genealogical, to one that is more historical anthropological. So the genealogical one in the calligraphic state, he's interested in kind of a history of the present. How did we arrive to Islam as, as we see it today? And so uh, what are the you know, concourse of circumstances? Uh, and so it is, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it traces these shifts uh, and these transformations in the tradition and, uh, and particularly with modernity. And so that is his earlier work. And then he says that in, the, in his new book, uh, Sharia Scripts, he's more interested in uh, what, what he calls more in the tradition before modernity. So he's interested in a much more historical uh, in investigation of these texts, their forms especially. Um, and, and so I see myself as being interested I definitely my work is very genealogical so it is I am particularly interested in the present I'm an anthrop I feel like that I am definitely an anthropologist anchored in the present <laughs> but I also have this interest in the past uh, in and of itself perhaps because uh, I see it also as an important um, not reservoir but like a, an important space to think about concepts and how they were existed differently to kind of unsettle what we take for granted today. Um, and I think that works across uh, audiences. So in some ways it works for Muslim practitioners in Beirut right now, or even activists, etc., who know walk in the configuration of Lebanon today. 
uh, and and so I'm interested in unsettling this normalcy of how we see wealth. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later, its relation to sectarianism, for example. And I think that is something that is very much particular to our particular historical moment. And it's not something that is, say, attached to wealth. Uh, so it is due to the architecture of the state, right? this meaning of wealth and its kind of attachment uh, to sectarianism is something that is due to the particular con secular configuration uh, in the architecture of uh, state law and religion in Lebanon and is not something that has always existed. Um, and um, so, yeah, so I think, uh, so I'm, I am, uh, I have this kind of, I'm anchored in the present in, in a way that an anthropologist is. And so the so I feel like I have a certain presentism in my historical work that some historians might kind of not be offended by, perhaps, or think that, you know, I am driven by what is happening today to ask questions. And I think, I mean, of course we are all, and I think I'm just much more upfront about it that it, I am presentist to a certain degree. Uh, and I look at the past as a way to be able to kind of think differently about some conundrums we have in, in the present. Um, yeah, and, and I, I mean, I say that perhaps I'm closer to a conceptual history uh, of which is definitely a field. And, uh, but, but I also, again, because I always put it in conversation with the present, uh, I think I remain uh, perhaps uh, uh, an anthropologist. But I feel sometimes I'm none. <laughs> like anthropologists will think it's too history or too Islamic law. And, you know, I feel like that's the, sometimes the problem of interdisciplinary work that's like truly interdisciplinary where you wonder where you fit. Study of religion is, yeah. Uh, there's that too <laughs> well I think then being sort of betwixt and in between kind of fits nicely into your first chapter's title which is a non-definition um, and so that definitely unsettles any preconceived notions we might have of what wolves are um, and so I was wondering why do you uh, begin your, your first chapter with the title a non-definition and perhaps this is a sneaky way of me asking what is a wolf? which is one of the hardest to answer. Um, in their book, there seems to be competing answers based on the historical moment. Imam Abu Hanifa's insistence that the ownership of the wealth remains in the founder's hands to his students who argue to the contrary that the wealth becomes property of God. Um, to more contemporary designations of wealths as associations or charitable projects similar to NGOs. Um, and I was wondering if the shifting contours of wealths Wolf's definitions can demonstrate the occasional conflict between library and archive, between text and praxis. And I was also wondering if there were any definitions of wolf's that surprised you both in the historical archive and also in your interviews. Um, thank you for this question. It's uh, the genealogy of wolf non-definition comes from graduate school and from the dissertation writing room. <laughs> because of course I was constantly confronted with people who, you know, anthropologists who are not familiar with the Middle East and who are like, what is this wealth? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to write a chapter and I'm going to try to explain why it's so hard for me to define it <laughs> because it's so, it changes, it has so many lives and I cannot really explain what it is. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the genesis of that title. 
uh, to my exasperation of having to explain, you know, this thing. Um, and, and, and of course, for um, scholars of Islam, it's such a present kind of institution. It's, you know, as I joke, I mean, I have a footnote that says um, that, in fact, uh, in the Encyclopedia of Islam, the entry on Waqf is like 50,000 words written by many people. And it tells you like how complex of an institution that is. But I was wondering if in answer to your question, uh, I could read something for you uh, and do the reading passage now. Okay. So um, I was sitting in Hash Tawfiq's office at the Imam Awza'i Islamic Studies College in Tariq Ejdide, the Beiruti Sunni Bastion par excellence. Within a stone's throw were the Beirut Municipal Sta Stadium, home of the Sunni Ansad football team, and the Beirut Arab University. As Isam al-Huri, the director of the university's board of trustees, had told me a few hours prior, the BAU, the Beirut Arab University, was one of the first private higher education institutions developed shortly after independence with an Arab nationalist agenda to counter the American and French universities founded by missionaries in the 19th century. This meeting was my first encounter with Hash Tawfiq, but as soon as I entered, and without much by way of niceties and introductions, he started asking me questions about Waqf. So what do you know about the difference between an association and a Waqf? I was not ready for this question, so I tried to deflect by talking about the 19th century Waqfs I had encountered in my historical research in the past year. But he retorted, these are not Waqfs. I was very confused. How could these Ottoman waqfs, which I had assumed were the model for the waqf revival, not be waqfs? And without much explanation or time for me to follow up, he followed closely with another question, with a hint of a smile on the corner of his lips. Do you know the waqf of the Birwa al-Ihsan? This was a trick question, because it was the much less familiar name of the waqf behind the Beirut Arab University, as I had just learned from Aysan Huri. So my Beiruti credentials confirmed, we launched into a discussion of that waqf. Hash Tawfiq explained the circumstances of the foundation of the waqf of al Bilwa al-Ihsan and how he and a few members of the board of trustees of the BAU had gone to the Sharia court and founded the waqf some 25 years after the establishment of the university. Using a grammar of waqf that I had become familiar with by reading legal texts and tens of Ottoman waqf deeds, I asked what objects they had made into a waqf. Was it the university buildings? He laughed at my question and replied enigmatically, we waqfed words. So this passage to me encapsulates some of the complexities I faced when I was um, dealing particularly with the contemporary waqf revival. So we waqfed words was completely puzzling to me. Like, what do you mean, like, we waqfed words? Like, in, in the... In the ultimate documents that I had seen, waqfs usually involved an object that has, that can exist eternally and that produces revenues uh, or has a use that's kind of perpetual. So most waqfs that I had encountered were either, um, say, institutions that whose use can be charitable, so schools or mosques or sadis or you know water fountains, etc. And then there was the other aspect of it, which was the institute, the sorry, objects whose revenues supported these very same institutions, so shops and lands and you know you name it. So it was very clear um, that it the walks should be an object. Uh, 
in in the Ottoman context, you sometimes also had money. Uh, so there was cash walks. Um, and but in in Beirut in particular, I've only encountered one of them, so they were not so present, uh, at least in 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 Beirut at the in, in the nineteenth century. Uh, even though the idea that they were mostly dominant in Anatolia has been kind of debunked, and there's shown there was there's been studies that have shown that they're actually a bit more widespread even in the Arab lands, uh, and and so all of this to say uh, is that walks at in the Ottoman Beirut that I had encountered were mostly these forms of waqf. And so then um, the contemporary waqfs looked different because a lot of them ended up, what I learned about waqfs uh, as that we waqfed words, Hashtawfi, uh, I think, meant that we just created the waqf as kind of a moral person as an entity. We didn't walk for any object, we created a walk. So really like what we made was this moral person or yeah, this this legal person. And that is to me uh, at the time was like a huge discovery that people are really using uh, walk not necessarily as kind of a funding structure, which is a really important way that it operated, uh, it, but they actually saw this realm of funding as something separate from the act of charity. Uh, whereas in the Ottoman period, it's through this act of charity, through this act of, you know, the economic kind of was really uh, the, 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 the act of the, the production of revenues was an essential part of what made wealth. It is really a way of financing uh, endowments as much as it is uh, financing such uncharitable institutions as much as it is uh, the financial institutions, the, uh, sorry, the charitable institutions themselves. So, I mean, I think to say listeners who are familiar with the American context, of course, uh, you think about endowed chairs here at the universities and how they kind of have a sum of money that is actually, you know, being worked in the market or however. And the um, the interest is what is used to support uh, the, the endowed chair. And so this is was similar in the sense that there was all of these uh, economic assets and that were kind of put to use and their revenues uh, were used to support these teaching or, um, you know, imams and uh, khatibs, etc., etc. So your fourth chapter has a fascinating account of how a group you term waqf abolitionists use economic arguments to make their case, leading waqf conservationists to respond in a similar register. And some of this material also appears in a journal article you published in Islamic Law and Society in uh, 2018, which listeners may be familiar with. How does the use of economic arguments in this debate fit into your overall thesis in the book? And what about the other strands of this chapter on family and charity? Um, thank you for this question. Um, I, I would say that um, you pick on this kind of strand of the argument that isn't I don't highlight so much perhaps and um, because I highlight much more the question of grammar and how meaning changes in context and I'm looking at these different meanings of 
charity and family and you know uh, intent and wolf itself um but as a way to look into uh how, how do we understand changes of the islamic tradition in modernity but um this chapter has this other strand which i uh develop more i would say in the islamic law and society uh, article where i highlight more that it's not only the grammar uh, which i do less of in that article but what i call the styles of reasoning and to me that is also something that changes in the islamic tradition at the time which is the introduction of what i call the statistical modes of reasoning so you see in these debates um these uh um you know scholars who are bringing in uh statistics and economic arguments about the effect of wealth on the real estate market on the credit on all of that stuff and uh using them to explain and to justify why wealth should be or should not be uh permissible or reprehensible or you know uh dif- the different values in the Islamic legal tradition and um and and of course that is uh you know that to me is 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 a way that the Islamic tradition in modernity incorporates uh these new ways of thinking in the tradition and it transforms and it's not necessarily a rupture but it brings in uh different kinds of reason uh within still the overarching structure so it is not that you know it's now we are just using interest say for example halaq uh in in his book kind of emphasizes more in the islamic legal theories book uh, at the last chapter he talks a lot about how interest becomes the driver of uh change in a lot of places but I, what i found here is that that was not necessarily uh the the kind of it doesn't necessarily become within the scholars that i examine the the main uh criterion uh for uh change but it, it is incorporated within the structure of uh say uh analogical reasoning etc so these become ways of reasoning that help support uh uh or come into a, a, a these existing kind of structures so um so so just to come back to your question so i feel like it's an argument that is parallel to the argument about changes in the tradition and modernity through grammars and i here present also through um styles of reasoning in the tradition so that's where i see them uh, as separate um and now uh to to come to the question of you know uh charity and family this is where we start seeing understandings of charity as opposed to profit making and so i think that's where i was uh that's what i introduced uh just when i was talking about the walk for non definition chapter when i was talking about how religion and economy were not these kind of separate activities necessarily uh or didn't feel that they needed to be separated so what you see is so i mean at the end of the day to be able to su- sustain these institutions you have to have some source of profit <laughs> and so they were very much you know and it was uh kind of giving and charity was not defined uh in opposition to uh say self interest 
So I, I remember teaching a class one day and the student asked, like, I think very perceptively, like, why is, why does one have, why is one giving to another have to be purely altruistic? Like, what is the problem of something being both good for me and for that person? Why does it sound sometimes so grating to say that, well, this is not truly altruistic because you're also getting some benefit say, in the hereafter or, um, you know, to your family, etc. So I think, and that's something that um, an anthropologist, Jonathan Perry, talks about uh, in terms of the development of the idea of this kind of pure gift. And he, he traces it particularly to the development of the idea of, like, the pure market, where everything is driven by self-interest. So you have to have, in kind of opposition to it, this kind of pure gift where, um, it's just about, um, uh, you know, uh, altruism and, you know, there's no self kind of benefit uh, to that. And so I, I think that we see similar um, kind of logics starting to structure the debate, saying that, in fact, all of this money that is benefiting the family is not really, it's about the self, it is not about, um, you know, it's also hoarded in the private. <laughs> and so all of these are, uh, they're not really benefiting like the public more broadly. So this is where notions of private and public also come in. And I also here build on the work of um, Ritu Birla, who did uh, great work in South uh, Asia about, uh, you know, trusts and charity and, and, uh, and, and, and the family business and how, um, and, and so this idea of what, uh, 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 like, the opposition between charity and uh, and profit is something she also, uh, she develops, really. So I wanted to ask here about another chapter from the second part of your book, uh, chapters titled The Intent of Charity. And here you describe, among other things, the creditor-debtor relationship in the Ottoman period and the Islamic legal tradition and the grammar of intent associated with it. And you then describe the changes to the debt regime, the legal regime, and the grammar of intent in the late Ottoman period and moving into the mandate and post-independence period. So what's your argument in this chapter and how do you weave together, make this very interesting connection between the issue of intent and credit and debt? Um, one of the things I forgot perhaps to say is the kind of connection between these kind of, you know, the chapters and how we move basically from the most intimate, uh, from, you know, intent to family to public benefit more broadly. So we're moving in scales, um, and, and, uh, and also in terms of the founder and the beneficiaries, you know, so that we're also moving outwards also to the larger say, public. This is a chapter where I, I think quite a bit about charitable intent. And interestingly, to come back to that question of uh, the archive and the ethnography and how I'm so uh, anchored in the present, interestingly, um, it, it was an encounter in the archive here that made me look at the present differently. So I had not really thought that about intent so much when I was, do I mean, 
Well, yes, I did. I, I, I knew that for um, Islamic legal scholars, intent, charitable intent is really essential. And that really what makes a waqf uh, charitable is that it had to have the intent of getting close to God. That's really kind of how it's defined. Uh, it has to be a qurba. And so, um, and I remember asking interlocutors at first, like, how do you understand this qurba purpose? And it just felt always awkward. And I just kind of dropped that question because they they would be a bit surprised, like, you know, I mean, I'm Muslim and I, I'm trying to just be a good Muslim. And so I, I just felt like I was questioning them. Like, I think what I was doing reflected possibly suspicion of intent because I was asking them, what is your intent in doing that? And, and that's something that, you know, is, um, I learned to understand my own assumptions when I was ask the assumptions I brought with myself when I asked such a question. And so I had dropped it. And then I encountered this file in the archive, in, in the Ottoman archive, where uh, the Mutasarrif, the kind of governor of uh, Mount Lebanon, had asked the the the, the office of the Sheikh of Islam about certain uh, waqf founders who were doing waqf in order to escape foreclosure for debt, and so that was really a, like a first in my encounters in the archive, and I had never seen that before, and so I started to think about wow, well, intent is something but how, how do you ascertain intent how do you know people what they're thinking or and then i started to think more about debt and what was happening in mount lebanon at the time why were there's you know people who were indebted were they rich were they poor who was really trying to do that and um i will leave you all the details <laughs> in the book because <laughs> it's really like a complicated story um but um all of this to say is that both um, the notables and the peasants who were indebted. So it was also a lot of notables trying to escape uh, the foreclosure of their properties. So it's not necessarily just peasants. So, um, and so um, th that the fact that the question arose, um, I started to think a little bit more about foreclosure and debt when what was really happening and and of course, there's the whole narrative of, you know, uh, capital and, you know, uh, um, Mount Lebanon transition to capitalism kind of debate and all of that uh, silk production in Mount Lebanon and, and the way that the economy in Mount Lebanon became kind of connected uh, to these uh, global circuits of, uh, of, of uh, finance capital, they were borrowing money from Lyon to kind of create uh, silk that they sold on the market and how most of the land started to become basically just there to produce this commodity, etc. And how the fate of Mount Lebanon very much was be became very much tied to the price of silk on the market. And, and hence all of the great stories we have from historians of Lebanon, of Mount Lebanon, particularly Akram about um, uh, the migrations and return migrations and how these you know new relations new, these new labor relations change gender relations as well etc so that's kind of a whole story that exists that I don't 
dwell so much on. But um, but to me, what was more interesting was um, the fact that debt was now owed to these merchants who were in Beirut and who were connected to these um, um, you know, credit houses who were in France. And so in some ways, then, these credit relations were not just among people who you knew, who you could defer, and 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 it and it went perhaps against uh, quite a few injunctions of forgiveness in the Islamic legal tradition. And it's important to also know that you know the a lot of the people doing these walks in Mount Lebanon are not Muslim. <laughs> you know, I mean, they are mostly Christian and Druze and. And, but the like the legal uh, framework that was used was that uh, Islamic legal framework, and so um, and so these same injunctions kind of uh, existed. So even when I looked in the Ottoman uh, Sharia court records in Beirut um, and contracts of debt, and uh, and and actually um, when there are uh, creditors coming to or to try and enforce, um, you know, payment. Um, the 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 judges sometimes actually quote the Quranic uh, injunction that says, um, "If, however, the debtor is in straitened conditions, grant him a delay until a time of ease, and it would be for your own good if you but knew it to remit the debt entirely by way of charity." So this in, in uh, injunction to uh, to forgiveness um, is something that seems to have structured quite a bit uh, the, the the relations of debt and the and foreclosures and uh, and even though there definitely existed certain contracts where there was a clause that could be included in the contract of debt that allowed automatic foreclosure or rather allowed for the debtor to uh, the creditor to go and just um, to the judge and for the judge to enforce uh, foreclosure. Um, and so while these existed, there also existed the injunction to uh, forgiveness. And it was it very much structured quite a bit of these uh, um, attempts to uh, by creditors to enforce uh, collection of debts. And, um, and, and so what what, I th what happens, of course, is that uh, with the absence of these connections and uh, that tie uh, uh, and the knowledge that ties these communities, um, these merchants don't care to, you know, to give, uh, um, uh, you know, to forgive or to, 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 um, to give more time to these debtors. And so um, you have more... Uh, attempts to in enforce these, and I think it would be. I need to do a bit more research on that to be able to compare with um, what um, Fahad uh, Bshara, uh he does. Kind of a similar work throughout the book. So I have a very short chapter, but he actually goes into much more details about whether these foreclosures happen or not. And he actually shows that they do not as much because they don't care to have, uh, you know, these lands and what to do with them. So um, it is something uh, that is worth for, uh, to investigate a bit more. Uh, all of this to say is that basically um, 
with the kind of rise in uh, these regimes of foreclosure, I say that um, it seems that these uh, regimes of foreclosure then render these WAFs much more suspicious because they are standing in the way of these foreclosures in ways that they were not before given a regime of forgiveness. And so in some ways, I, I, I try to make uh, a link between these changes in particular economic conditions and even particular uh, dispositions of suspicion towards uh, the intent of founders and their real charitable intent or not, and, uh, and whether they are really, you know, taking away money from, uh, you know, circulation and keeping it in families and, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that would be one of the connections I, I'm trying to do in, in that chapter. Um, speaking about placing Islamic studies into conversation with political economy, um, I think I saw it most prominently in this chapter, and you have this striking line about how sort of the, the changing debt regimes and the introduction of foreign capital um, not only changes the means of production and social relations, but also the Islamic tradition itself. And I think that conversation often gets left out. As a follow-up to, to the question Julian just posed, I wanted to ask a different line about the connection between suspicion and intent and bringing it closer to our contemporary moment. In one instance in the 1990s debate around Solidaire and other development projects and land expropriation, there was a call for the preservation of wealth by some. Yet the recent graffiti tax the wealth which emerged in the revolution all over Lebanon echoes a suspicion, suspicion towards the council itself. Was the intention of state officials and non-official officials, i.e. community and religious leaders, ever put into question? For example, to what extent were wealth seen as further propelling sectarianization? Are there still conceptions of wealth detached from state bureaucracy? Thank you for this question, Jenna. Um, so I would say, I would start by saying that Solidaire is the name of the company uh, Société pour, uh, Libanaise pour le Développement et la Reconstruction uh, that was in charge of rebuilding the city center in Beirut in the post-1975-1990 uh, war. And um, the project was very much based on expropriating everybody, buying people, all most people who owned uh, land or people who owned buildings, people who owned shops, who, you know, all the owners and tenants and giving them shares in the company. And, um, and at first they had agreed with the director general of Islamic Wakfs that they would, uh, you know, also the DGIW would give up uh, a lot of its Wakfs. And um, there was a lot of mobilization outside of the, the DGIW. So in some ways, what's also interesting about that is that these are like state but non-state entities at the same time. So um, the DGIW, uh, you know, most of there's a few people in that uh, um, institution that receive salaries from the state, but a lot of them actually receive salaries from Alqaf, from the Wafs revenues. So there, and uh, and the fact that the Sunni uh, uh, directorate of Islamic Wafs is tied to the state is itself um, an inheritance from the Ottoman period, because most other entities that are responsible for uh, Christian wakfs 
which are the churches, they are much more separated from, uh, the, the, from the state. And so the wakfs today, in, in the way they are understood, are very much considered the property of the community. And that is something, you know, that's how most people understand them. You know, it's the property of the community. And, uh, and, and, the, um, and part of what I say also is that this connection between Awqaf and the Muslim or the Sunni community is part of the way these um, communities reproduce themselves as communities because now you are, you know, you identify with this kind of, you know, you have property that is yours, you know, and so you saw that reproduced in uh, the city center uh, debates. It's, it's about also the presence of the Sunni community in the city center, you know, in many facets, uh, the articulation of waqf uh, as property of the community, which is part of the interventions of the of the um, French mandate, that's how they defined waqf, has helped make waqf a space through which sectarian identities are reproduced, which is what, for example, also uh, Max Weiss argues in his book, you know, when looking at cemeteries, etc., but I do think that there's a more complex story to the to that, and that's what I try to highlight um, in the story of uh, the community and opponents to the mufti and you know various uh, you know Muslim Beiruti Sunnis who are just kind of appalled at the fact that the DJIW sold quote-unquote, the walks of the community. So in some ways here, you know, what's happening is that there is a, a sectarian kind of uh, coming together of the political leaders and the religious leaders because, of course, it is Hariri in conjunction with uh, the person who was uh, acting uh, Mufti at the time. And so the elites are kind of coming together, but there's also opposition at the grassroots level against that so it's not necessarily and using an islamic legal idiom so it is not necessarily one that is a sectarian one so they are it's you see divisions within the sect itself against the way the sectarian leaders are acting so i think that there there's more complexity there uh than just saying yeah it just reproduces sectarianism uh in and i think Part of what it does is, um, you know, th there is an aspect to these awqaf that are not just about uh, our presence as Sunnis or the, the Sunnis and what's happening to them. It is also about, you know, these uh, family walks. There's also these, uh, you know, wishes of uh, dead grandparents or, you know, all of these other um arguments that come into the picture about why these waqfs and their perpetuation matters. And some of that language is drawn by scholars from the Islamic legal tradition, even though they don't exist in law right now, and, you know, people can just very easily sell awqaf or, you know, exchange them as the official term, but they really can be sold very, not very easily, but to a certain degree, it's possible. Um... And so I would say that um, in the general, like even, you know, the tax, the walks that was spray painted in uh, the city, in the, in the 
during the revolution in uh, on the Al Amin Mosque uh, and on uh, uh, the Saint George Church. I think it it is very much an an incrimination of these institutions and these works as part of the sectarian uh, elite, and I think. Uh, there definitely is something to that, but I think there's also a more complex story uh, that that can that you know that we need to look at, and that there are also ways to use wolf in ways that are um, not necessarily doing that work, that sectarian work. Let's say. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Montaz. Perhaps we should close this interview by saying, first of all, congratulations on the publication of the book. It just came out this week. Second, as dictated by New Books Network conventions and academic tradition, we were just wondering if we could ask you what you're currently working on. What What's your next project? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and for these great questions. So regarding my projects and what I'm working on right now, um, one of the things is uh, the question of Solidaire that you guys brought up. And because Solidaire, it's such a kind of touchstone for not just Lebanon, but also more broadly. So right now with the reconstruction post-blast, it's uh, it's really come back as the model against which everything is compared. And, uh, and the kind of not to do, given that it is really rebuilt and it's, some of it is beautiful, but it's really empty and it's really... Uh, mostly a speculation ground. And so um, I was interested in doing a bit more research on Solidaire itself and on the walks there and to, to also look a bit more at um, the reason why certain, um, you know, there was a lot of um, organizing against what ha the plans of Solidaire and against expropriation and uh, rights holders came together and, you know, there was an association that was made, lawsuits were filed. It was a big kind of opposition, uh, but that was kind of very much cut. Uh, and it was very much using, you know, rights to the city. It was using, you know, um, uh, the regular legal tools available about how does expropriation happen? Is it really based on public benefit? Is that public benefit, etc.? And so, why did these kinds of mobilization fail? Uh, and whereas a mobilization around Alkaf work, I mean, there are certain hints. Of course, Alkaf are much more less um, numerous. <laughs> so, uh, whereas if you question the whole premise by uh, questioning the expropriations, the whole project will fail because the really the sorry there is based on uh, you know buying out everybody, doing some uh, improvements that the state pays for, and then you reap the benefits by selling them at the much more expensive uh, you know uh, prices, and so so there is that reason. But I do think there's also some more complex story to be told about the appeal of uh, these quote-unquote uh, sectarian um, arguments and um, or religious arguments however you want to frame it and I, I I wouldn't that's why I say quote-unquote because I think there's more to it than the sectarianism um, and then 
another project that is more kind of um, preliminary is one that builds on this question of charity for the family and fam uh, and filial piety. And I'm interested in perhaps a more ethnographic research that, <laughs> I mean, it might have a bit more historical as well, but it talks about elderly care. And so how pair, you know, children, the injunction for children to take care of their parents, especially in old age. And so how does that happen? What forms of, uh, you know, living situations exist? Who does the labor uh, for care? And, um, and what does this and how does this change with, uh, you know, for the presence of certain institutions? Um, and I think it brings in also particular questions of, you know, labor, uh, because a lot of work is done by domestic uh, workers who are immigrant. And, you know, so I think it brings in a bunch of questions I'm interested in, the particular economic, the, you know, the religious tradition. Um, and uh, yeah, so, yeah, and also the architectural, perhaps, because when you think about um, homes and how people live in certain homes and the pre also the building of senior homes as a typology. So I think it brings in all of these different interests I have. And I think it's a huge question right now, because when I was in Beirut this summer, it was really um, very, very, very depressing and hard and seeing a lot of elder, senior citizens sleeping on the streets, which is because of the blast, because of housing, because of, you know, the financial situation. I mean, it's a project I've been thinking about for a few years, but I think seeing the situation to, like in the last um, a few months at least was uh, just you know, a reminder of, you know, the, the, the presence of such questions. Thank you.